Now that's not enough affordable housing, is it, Aim? No! If not here, where? Where else in Chevy Chase? Where else in Chevy Chase will we break down the east-west highway divide? Hello and welcome to another episode of Justice Above All, a podcast from the Legal Defense Fund's Thurgood Marshall Institute. I'm your host for this episode, Julian Castro, TMI Senior Research Fellow. In this episode, we're looking at the geography and environment of public housing. Across the nation, existing and newly built public and subsidized housing is concentrated in low economic opportunity areas, disproportionately black and brown communities with high levels of poverty and high exposure to environmental dangers. The federal government has overseen a long history of neglect and disinvestment in public housing, which has led to profound consequences for black and brown communities, like high rates of poverty, health risks from exposure to environmental hazards. Amalia Smyrniotopoulos, Senior Counsel for the Legal Defense Fund, explains that building housing in low economic opportunity areas was once a part of the government's strategy for subsidized housing. So many subsidized housing complexes were actually built before many of the major environmental protections became law in the 1970s and 1980s. And at the time, land in industrial and polluted areas was, and it still is, cheap. So it was easier for governments to buy that land and place these kinds of housing developments on that land. This is actually part of an explicit strategy at the time. Uh, so it was summed up in 1966 by uh, Benjamin Lesniak, who was then the executive director of the Chicago Housing Authority, who proposed that, it, quote, we can build them, being subsidized housing, in vacant areas that are surrounded by industries as a way to solve what they saw was a problem of where to place these buildings. So funding shortages have since stalled efforts to clean up these sites, and lack of funding unfortunately still makes it attractive to put new developments in areas with cheap land, which unfortunately is often in places where there are still environmental hazards to contend with. And David Wheaton, an economic justice policy fellow for the LDF, explains that the discriminatory practice of redlining also plays a role in this historic disinvestment. Redlining uh, was first a government action that labeled neighborhoods A through D as where to give the investment to. The A neighborhoods were the best neighborhoods to invest in, and the D neighborhoods were the worst neighborhoods to invest in. And many of those D neighborhoods were where black and brown people were were living. And so there was uh, just a historic disinvestment into those communities. And so when you saw the rise of subsidized housing and federal subsidized housing, they targeted those communities and built a lot of those communities where there just wasn't the infrastructure already put in. And so that's why we see a lot, the, his, the historic way, why we see a lot of subsidized housing in those census tracts. And because of historic housing discrimination, coupled with barriers that have prevented communities of color from achieving financial stability, Black and Latino renters are overrepresented in subsidized housing. So most of the people who live in subsidized housing, if you know they're working age and able-bodied, are actually working or have recently been employed. You know, these are people that go into work every day, but unfortunately that job does not pay enough for them to afford market rent where they are living. The people who live in these uh, subsidized 
um, housing developments who aren't working are caring for a child under six or a family member with a disability. And I think, unfortunately, because of longstanding inequities in our society, disproportionately, the people who live there are people of color. So in public housing, 43% of tenants are Black and 21% are Latino. And in households that use housing vouchers, 48% of people are Black. For residents in subsidized housing units, this disinvestment hasn't just meant their homes are concentrated in areas that exacerbate cycles of poverty. It's meant exposure to health hazards from their surroundings, including in their own homes. So unfortunately, many subsidized housing developments are located in areas of extreme environmental hazard. So for example, according to EPA data obtained by The Intercept, 9,000 federally subsidized housing properties sit within a mile of a Superfund site. And that's actually an underestimate because they excluded from that sites that we already knew were near Superfund sites. That's 5 million total families living in federally subsidized housing that are exposed to known environmental hazards. Uh, we also know from other research that air pollution exposure disparately affects those residing in federally subsidized housing because those uh, buildings are often near major highways, transportation hubs, ports, other areas where there's a lot of vehicular activity that can create air pollution. We also know that many public housing units themselves are old and in desperate need of repairs. They have damaged roofs, broken heating and air conditioning systems, and aging sewer lines. The funding to repair subsidized housing developments has been so lacking for so many years that we're now losing more than 10,000 public housing departments each year because they're no longer habitable due to the need for these repairs. The state and the infrastructure of subsidized housing, because of most subsidized housing is so old, they're living in units that were built in the 40s and the 50s. And just because of historic disinvestment, those units have not been refurbished. They have not been rehabilitated. And so you see communities that are living in pretty much filth. They have rat infestation, roach infestations. They're you know, sidewalks are crumbling. If they even have sidewalks to walk on, they're, the infrastructure of the actual building is actually crumbling around them. There are apartment complexes, subsidized apartment complexes from Baltimore to, te to Houston, Texas that have, you know, ceilings caving in. Um, and, and, um, and so there's just a lot, a lot that needs to be put into the infrastructure. But the risk is that people are dying from this. People are, people are getting cancer from the environmental toxins. People are, are not able to, to go to sleep uh, because they have roach infestations and rat infestations and are not able to actually live in the place that they want to live and call home. And so that's what's at stake right now. And living in environmentally hazardous areas where subsidized housing is often located has long-term consequences that can impact entire generations. So unfortunately, we see a range of negative consequences for these families. People are at high risk for developing lifelong and long-term mental and physical health challenges, including cancer, risk defects, and developmental disabilities. Children are especially vulnerable to chemical exposure because they take in more air and food and water uh, per unit of body weight because they're small. Uh, in these children, we see experience educational difficulties and behavioral difficulties. 
all told, living near toxic waste sites actually reduces lifespans by an average of 1.2 years overall. And that's just looking at the health and educational consequences. If we think long term, you know, there are going to be economic burdens associated with that. You know, an increase in medical bills and overall debt. If you're paying your medical bills, you know, maybe you can't afford your electricity bill or your water bill. And there could be a snowball effect of the different ways in which these hazards can impact your life. So why is it that despite the documented hazards, public housing continues to be concentrated in low economic opportunity areas? The answer comes down to a mix of market forces and anti-public housing sentiment. It's true that while policymakers have some tools to encourage or discourage development, market rates do play a role in determining where homes get built. But opposition to subsidized developments being built in wealthier, whiter neighborhoods is often loud and often influential. For instance, in 2018 in Salisbury, a wealthy community outside of Richmond, Virginia, a nearby construction site with a sign mentioning funding from the Department of Housing and Urban Development received swift backlash from the community. Residents there raised concerns about property values and about nearby schools being overrun with, quote, behavior problems. These concerns resurface among wealthier, wider communities whenever new developments that may include subsidized housing are proposed. And even though they're unfounded, they pose a real threat to the placement of public housing in higher opportunity areas. I think the other reason why we see uh, subsidized housing developments in these areas is nimbyism. So unfortunately, state and local governments exercise a great deal of of control over where subsidized housing gets built. And unfortunately, for a number of reasons, subsidized housing developments are more likely to get vocal opposition rather than a warm welcome from wealthier, higher opportunity communities. Unfortunately, the result of these two factors, government disinvestment and NIMBYism, means that while there are more than 74,000 subsidized affordable multifamily housing properties in the U.S., just 7% are currently located in high opportunity areas. Concerns about the type of behavior or culture public housing brings, or fears of decreasing property values, are part of a larger anti-public housing sentiment which can be rife with dog whistles and racist appeals. The fear in wealthier, whiter neighborhoods that subsidized housing in their communities would bring in crime and quality of life problems and drain community resources is based on an inaccurate and discriminatory image of the type of residents in public housing. David says that image couldn't be further from the truth. Study after study shows that uh, people who live in subsidized housing are, again, less likely to commit crimes. They're more likely to have their kids go to school. You know, there, you know, studies show that these are the people who just want a, a nice, safe, decent place to live and call home, uh, like we all do. And so th- there isn't this big boogeyman. Um, there's communities uh, all across this country uh, that, you know, when they have accepted people who are on subsidized housing have been astonished of the hard, you know, how hardworking they are. And then also just how much they can uh, come in and combine into the community and how much the community is better off having people in subsidized housing in, in actually the community. So these baseless fears result in the othering of residents of public housing. You know, if you are not used to living in a mixed income neighborhood, 
it is very easy to think of people who live in subsidized housing as being different than you and not recognize that they are living fundamentally the same lives. They are caring for their children. They are working. Um, they value the same things that you value in your community. And those fears, when we don't recognize that, I think can be weaponized to deter affordable housing development. But our relationship with public housing doesn't have to be this way. One of the ways we can improve the lives of people living in public housing is to hold policymakers and government agencies accountable for their role in subsidized housing's proximity to Superfund sites, where dangerous pollutants are highly concentrated. So I think we need to see increased investment at the federal and state level to make repairs in these buildings and also to clean up sites where we know there are environmental housing. And thankfully, there's been a lot of funding that has been given out to states through the American Rescue Plan, the Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, and other federal efforts that can be used for some of these projects. And hopefully, we'll see continued federal and state investments. You know, federal and state governments should also test these sites and notify residents when there are hazards discovered so that they can seek medical care if needed and uh, continue to assess the situation. There are also some sort of physical infrastructure changes that can be made to improve these sites to deal with existing hazards short of rehabilitation. You know, for example, if you know that a, you know, there's a playground on a site that has environmental hazards, you can move that playground to a safer space to avoid exposing children to some of the hazards in that site. Another way forward is to hold our local and state officials responsible for implementing zoning reforms that would allow for the expansion of public housing and pushing for environmental policies that protect the health and safety of all residents. I think the first step is efforts to increase the actual amount of affordable housing that we have. We have a housing shortage right now in this country, and we need to actually build more affordable housing units, period. I think that involves a number of different steps from zoning reform that would allow for construction of multifamily units in areas that are currently zoned for single family units, increasing housing subsidies, uh, rehabilitating old buildings and increasing government funding overall for these programs. So I think there's a lot that we can do to help you know, increase you know, access to subsidized housing and ensure that it's cited in safe, high-opportunity communities. So one, there is a whole bucket of work that can be done to help, you know, the subsidized housing where it is, like supporting increased funding to clean up toxic sites, you know, encouraging EPA and HUD to take those necessary steps, pushing state and local officials to strengthen environmental protections and enforce environmental and health assessments of communities and to actually attract cleaner industries rather than the kind of heavy industry that leads to these pollutants in our environment. Uh, people can also get involved in the actual debates around where to site subsidized housing developments. You know, whether that is you know, actually going to meetings where these efforts are being debated and saying, yes, in my backyard, I do want these developments there, supporting efforts to rezone. Um, and also pushing back on efforts to bring in 
new industry, new communities that have already uh, been exposed to some of these hazards. You know, for example, there was um, an effort in Richmond, California, a community that has already been exposed to multiple environmental hazards to push back against a new incinerator being sited near their neighborhoods. And that community built a multiracial coalition that came together and was successful in pushing back against that. I think, you know, the number one thing that you can do for all of this is to vote and uh, ensure that the people who are representing you are representing your views on the environment and housing. But we can't stop at improving infrastructure or environmental conditions in subsidized housing communities, or even at building new housing in high opportunity neighborhoods. We need a holistic approach, one that revitalizes existing public housing and prioritizes creating communities where residents have the opportunity to truly flourish. What you really want is you want the school board and you want the schools um, and you want your community police officers. You want everybody to have one plan of, okay, we're going to rehabilitate this neighborhood. And so it's not just rehabilitating the, the inside uh, of the uh, you know apartment complex or the residents, but it's also making sure those kids have good schools to go to. It's making sure that they have a park that the kids can play in that's close. It's making sure they have accessible transportation and equitable transportation that's close to where the developments are going. It's making sure that that they know that there's a community policing model put in place so that they, you know, know their police officers, they know the people who are going to be protecting them. And so everybody has to be a part of that to uplift these neighborhoods and uplift these communities. Again, these communities, a lot of these communities have gone without historic investments for decades, for generations, really. And so it's going to take more than just, a, you know, a, a $20 million rehabilitation project to uplift these communities. It's going to take everybody uh, you know, in that public sector to uplift these communities uh, and get higher investment yields from subsidized housing. This has been another episode of Justice Above All, a podcast from the Legal Defense Fund's Thurgood Marshall Institute. To learn more about LDF's work to support public housing, go to www.naacpldf.org. And to keep up with the latest research from the Thurgood Marshall Institute, visit www.tminstituteldf.org. That's tminstituteldf.org. This episode has been produced by Kesey Deveni and Jackie O'Neill and edited by Kesey Deveni. Thank you for listening.